Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Walter Russell Mead, author of the new book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel and the Fate of the Jewish People. Uh, Walter, welcome to Bookstack. It's great to be here. So congratulations on the book. And as, as you say right at the outset, there are not many topics over the decade that have been more argued about than the United States relationship with Israel. Exactly. The, you, you know, the, the whole library of books have been written on this subject, and I felt a little intimidated coming at it. But as I began to look at it, I, I started to feel I really might have something to say. I mean, it, it is interesting that, you know, that this is a topic that it gets controversially debated in universities, in think tanks, uh, uh, sermons are given from pulpits, it comes up in politics, it's, it's everywhere. But I was struck that you make the point that the discussion is often angry and simplistic, but you quote Alexander Pope on bad poetry saying that, uh, that, that very often this debate is like bad beer, though thin it's never clear. Yeah. I think it's, you know, what it often comes down to is that when people are arguing or talking about Israel, they're often really talking about themselves in some way. So people uh, who are, you know, see, you know, people maybe who identify with the Palestinians as a people who are, feel oppressed and wrong done by are get, bring passion to the debate over that. And others bring passion over to the debate over maybe a positive identification with the Zionist movement or the Jewish people. But I, it's not just in America. You know, if you go to Northern Ireland, you'll see the Israeli flag, the Star of David, flying over Unionist neighborhoods. And you'll see the Palestinian flag flying over uh, uh, Republican neighborhoods. So somehow this conflict has captured the imagination of much of the world. But it is a point that you make in the book that there is a uniquely American perspective on the state of Israel that is different to those ones that you were describing there. It's it's not the kind of the European Enlightenment tradition. This is something that is very American and seems to be very deeply rooted too. Exactly. Uh, you can find um, Puritan preachers in 17th century Boston giving sermons saying that the Bible demonstrates that the Jews will someday return to Palestine. You find John Adams, the second American president, saying to a Jewish friend of his, you know, I, I look to see you re-entering the land of your fathers as a conqueror. There has been this persistent strain of support for the idea of a Jewish state in, in Palestine going back to really the beginnings of English-speaking American colonies. And it, and, and it is a kind of a, a, a paradox in, in many ways that so many presidents have given so much attention uh, to, this, uh, to this issue that, you know, so, so much of what presidents do at other times are, you think about uh, politics today, it, it's, it's about Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine. It's about the rise of China during the Cold War. It was about dealing with the Soviet Union. For, uh, for a state which is so small, 
people, it, it, it really preoccupies so much or occupies so much real estate in American politics. Yeah, it, it is interesting that there's been no diplomatic effort in the history of the United States as sustained or as expensive uh, that, that took so much attention and time of, of the most senior officials than the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And in all the conversation, you, you, you can read about it incessantly in newspapers and people debate what we did and didn't do and when it went wrong and who was right and all of these things. Um, people don't ask, why did this question of all questions command this kind of attention for so long for, for so many very different presidents? And, and I was struck as well that, and you're quite open about this actually uh, in the book, that that this was a kind of a unique challenge for you. I mean, you've written these sweeping histories of American foreign policy, of Anglo-American relations, and yet in, in many ways, you, you don't quite come out and say it, but come pretty close to saying it, that in many ways, this this almost presented you with the greatest challenge, perhaps of your uh, of your writing career. It was certainly the hardest book for me to write. It really, this, from, from simmer to serve, this project took me something like 12 years to research and, and write and, and, and most of all, think through. And, you know, while a lot of it touched on, on subjects I've handled before, uh, like American foreign policy history, and for that matter, Anglo-American relations, um, a lot of it, you know, to really understand this, you need to understand the broader history of nationalism in 19th century Europe. You need to understand uh, German politics at one point. There's a whole chapter about um, what I call the German Balfour Declaration when Theodor Herzl persuades Kaiser Wilhelm II to ask the Ottoman Sultan to create a Jewish state in Palestine. So it's a, um, it's a really wide-ranging study. And it requires the, you know, it, it, it required skills I didn't have when I started out. And it's also something of a case study, it seems to me, for the primacy of foreign policy. That, that, that foreign policy is something that has, tr has been an obsession for you, really, has transfixed you uh, since childhood, since the Cuban Missile Crisis you talk about uh, to, at the start of the book. But, mm -hmm. but, it, but it seems to me that this kind of represents a, another way of you saying that, you know, although there are many other issues that get discussed, foreign policy is at the heart of so much about what America uh, is doing, not just on the world stage, but also uh, domestically too. Right. And, then, and yet, conversely, of course, so much of what shapes our foreign policy is domestic politics hmm. and domestic culture. That I think, you know, this may be my sharpest point of contention with some sort of academic uh, theoreticians of realism and so on, where they want to draw this sharp distinction and say that domestic politics don't matter when it comes to thinking about the foreign policy of states. Actually, it seems to me you have you cannot understand foreign policy if you don't understand not only domestic politics, but domestic culture. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's, it's interesting, even the way that uh, you've described the book that yes, you do talk about uh, theory and strategy and these kind of things. But, but there's this very striking phrase that you use that uh, in many ways, the, the book is a portrait of the American spirit in the world. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating way to conceptualize a book like this. 
Well, it, I believe that that this more holistic approach is the best way to study foreign policy. And that I actually hope that this book will be useful, obviously, to people interested in the U.S.-Israel relationship. But I hope it will also stimulate some fresh thinking in the foreign policy world about how do we think about American foreign policy? How do we think about American strategy? Because honestly, I don't think anyone is going to look back at the last 30 years and call it a golden age in the history of American foreign policy. And I guess that, I mean, one of that's one of the reasons why U.S.-Israel relations are, are so good for making that point is that you know, it, it does occupy such a distinctive place in the, the American consciousness. It's bound up with how America sees itself in the world. Well, yeah, it, um, and it also, of course, it touches on big issues, you know, this story. I mean, it, you know, I, maybe one of the most sort of striking things for me in, in reading the book was to realize that the, the thing the U.S. did that had the most impact on the history of the state of Israel was probably the 1924 law that cut immigra- Jewish immigration to the U.S. by 90 percent when we imposed a quota system and banned almost all European immigration. And that without that act, there would, it, it is very unlikely that enough Jews would have ever moved to Palestine to build a state of Israel. And yet also without that act, um, possibly millions of Jews would have escaped the Holocaust. So the, the, the way in which the real story is, is different from the kind of imagined story that even policymakers walk around with in their heads um, and yet it, it doesn't have simple, obvious morals, I think, the real story that, you know, oh, well, this was always right and this was always wrong. It's very complicated. Yeah, complicated. And, you know, you, you, as you point out that, I mean, these are some of the deepest but also most contested ideas uh, in, Amer- in American politics about foreign policy, but also domestically as the, uh, the, the quota uh, example that you gave there. And, uh, for example, uh, also bans on uh, Jews at, at universities like Harvard and so on dur- during the same period. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, there it also required me to to try to keep a balance in certain ways because on the one hand it does seem clear that anti-semitism never quite assumed the force in america that it did in much of europe but at the on the other hand there was always there there has always been this uh this um, anti-semitic trend in american life and culture and trying to sort of parse that out, and also to, to try to understand why the Zionist movement often appealed not only to philo-Semites and people generally sympathetic to, to the Jews, but also had some appeal from anti-Semites as well. I mean, you used the word balance there. I was, I, I was very struck that you make it clear and, and you follow through on this, actually, kind of throughout the book, that, uh, that uh, this, this is not a book which is about half-hearted policy proposals. Uh, it's not a book about advocacy. Uh, you do make it clear, actually, that you support the existence of the state of Israel, that broadly you support the two-state solution. Uh, but, 
but but the, that's not primarily what the book is about. That really what you're trying to do is to disentangle these uh, deeply contested ideas that we talked about before. Yeah, it it. I'm trying to. I, I hope it's a book that people on all sides of these issues can find useful and can help them think more clearly and perhaps even again I'm I'm one of the things that drew me to this subject Richard and this was even 10 years ago was that we were already beginning to sense this trend of canceling cancel culture and if people have ideas that you don't like or say things that you don't like and this would be true by the way of Friends of Israel not wanting radical Palestinian advocates on campus, as well as people on the left not wanting various right-wing causes to be expressed on campus. That a lot of the cancel culture in America has been grounded in exactly this debate. And some of the tough fights that you see are about Israel-Palestine. And so I wanted to try to write about a very contentious subject in a way that that gave a place, you know, I, as, as you say, I have my point of view and I, and I don't try to hide it, but I try to listen to what people with very different views have to say on this, because if you don't, you can't capture the history of what's happened. And also, uh, it, it seems to me, uh, a kind of a recognition uh, of what the world is actually like, that, as you say, foreign policy is hard. Uh, you have a great quote where you say the Game of Thrones is not an academic examination. Uh, yeah, it just There's a sense throughout the book that the world is a devastating place. Well, exactly. And we see it, of course, today where you know, as, as you and I are having this conversation, uh, President Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons in the war in Ukraine. And, you know, what, what should we do in response? It's not that clear. It's not, there's not some obvious answer to this. And, so. and, 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 and even the extent uh, to which morality uh, can play a part in policy in uh, policy making and strategy that again again you say that you know our policy towards rival parties you're talking about uh, Israel at this stage uh, should take note of the moral elements of the dispute but it cannot be driven or defined by them I, I think that's a message that many people will actually find quite hard to read this idea that sometimes policy means acting you know in a way that uh, perhaps perhaps does not meet the moral standards that, that the United States has very often set itself up for? Well, I look at other questions, uh, you know, say our policy toward China. Uh, you know, what's, what's happened in Tibet is, is, is horrible. What's going on in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs is terrible. And we can't ignore those things when we think about the nature of the Chinese state um, or the things that it might or might not be likely to do elsewhere. But at the same time, we, dealing with China involves this whole range of things. For one thing, trying to avoid a nuclear war with China, which would be an excellent idea. Um, and trying to figure out what is a framework, you know, can the U.S. and China coexist without war? And if so, what would that look like? And what do we need to do? And how do we deter them? You can't sort of settle every question in the relationship 
simply by a reference to moral concerns, even though those are very deep and very real. And I, I suppose that, that critics would come back uh, on that argument and say, well, isn't that the kind of logic that ends up with the worst kind of um, tragedy for the Jewish people, the Holocaust, that idea of putting morality aside, turning a blind eye, sometimes turning ships away, literally turning ships away, that that, that kind of thinking can end in something uh, as, as devastating as the Holocaust. Yes. And then on the other hand, suppose we had said Stalin is such a monster that even to defeat Hitler, we can't prop him up. Uh, that would that applying moral thinking to Stalin during World War Two would have meant the perpetuation of the Holocaust. Um, so, you know, you morality is real and there is a cost, a real cost to um actions that break the moral order in some way yet you can't look at it outside of the of the practical nature again we we saw this i think with president biden and and mbs in saudi arabia that the united states needs to work with saudi arabia right now even if uh, there are things about the saudi government that that many people find deeply offensive. So I am not, by the way, comparing Israel's policies on the West Bank to China's in Xinjiang. I think they're really quite different, even if you're critical of Israeli policy. Um, but it, it is the case that, that when you think about your policy in Israel, you have to think, well, what is my Middle East policy about? And you have to look at that in the context of what is my global foreign policy about. And at least since the end of World War II, my sense has been that American foreign policy at bottom is about trying to preserve the quote, American way of life. And on the other hand, to do this while avoiding nuclear conflicts with superpower adversaries. Um, I think both of those ends, broadly speaking, are moral, but they can sometimes, but pursuing them can get you into very, very complicated situations. What about the, the shifting landscape in American politics? It is fascinating the, the, the shift which takes place over the course of the book that in the 1930s and 40s, we see that the most vociferous Zionists are the, the anti-fascists, um, kind of those on the left. They now, by and large, the left, without generalizing too much, but by and large, take the opposite position. Yeah. The right, meanwhile, has embraced those old leftist pro-Israel positions of the 1930s and 40s. So there's, a, there's this kind of constant uh, evolution of ideas over time in ways that uh, quite often seem surprising. What, why, why did that happen? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, and, you know, the shift, the, 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 and it, goes, it really goes into the, as late as the 1960s, that the left generally was the source of the strongest support for Israel and the right was much more distanced. Part of it was that Israel, after 1948, was the most socialist Western country. The uh, Israeli political economy was far to the left of any West European country. And the, the Zionist parties were almost all 
hardcore socialist parties. And so Israel was the poster child for the Democrat, literally for the Democratic Socialists of America, who used to point to Israel and say, see, you can have real socialism and you can still have democracy and you can still have, be militarily strong. So Israel was, was proof that socialism could work. Now that begins to change um, partly because Israel's, you know, in a way, Israel goes from being a socialist poster child to being a Thatcherite or Reaganite poster child beginning in the 1970s as Israel embraces, uh, I suppose, what some people would call neoliberal reforms. But then Israel also was, was popular as the, um, the chief victim of fascism, chief victims of fascism were Jews. And to be anti-fascist was often to be pro-Jewish. So that, um, that constellation of elements help make, uh, and, and, and there are even deeper roots, which I won't bore our readers by, uh, our listeners by going into, but they can follow in the book that really go back to the French Revolution. Uh, but the, the ties between the left and Israel began to fray in Europe, the, the change was much more dramatic and came faster. In the United States, it's still the case that a majority of Democrats are supportive of Israel, at least the last time I looked at polls, although they, they tend to move around. Uh, so in that sense, American Democrats have been behaving like center-left uh, parties around the world. They've, uh, uh, they've been moving away from the previous support from Israel, but also like American leftists, they're sort of less leftists than the European social democratic parties. So the patterns are consistent. As for the right, I would actually argue that a lot of this new support that the right found for Israel comes out of um, it's a really complicated story, Richard. Let me kind of catch my breath here. But uh, in many ways, it's not so much that, that the American right made Israel, but that Israel helped produce the American right. That the, uh, the wave of religious revivals that uh, Billy Graham was kind of the, the leader of was a wave of, of revivals that, you know, you, you look at, at what was going on and you see, if you think about what happened in the 1940s, in 1944, the Soviet troops began to liberate the extermination camps. And you see, you'd heard stories about the Holocaust and so on, but you start seeing newsreel and, and photos of the survivors and it, you know, this accumulating history of such a horrible crime uh, one that sort of disproves one of the founding myths of the Enlightenment, that, that advances in science and technology will ultimately make human beings reasonable, rational, good, that what's wrong with the human spirit can be cured by scientific philosophical progress. Because here you have Germany, you know, considered for long the most philosophically enlightened country in Europe where the spirit of the Enlightenment had penetrated so deeply, and they're committing the most ghastly, barbarous crimes that the imagination can, can conceive of. So the hope of the Enlightenment has been destroyed. 
a year later, the nuclear explosions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki tell people that this, this species that we now know still has this immense capacity for moral evil has now gained the ability to destroy itself through nuclear weapons. And this, this shock, I believe, continues to reverberate through human culture today. And the sense that we live in an, that we can't trust ourselves as a species. And yet that as a species, we have a power to destroy ourselves. That is that perception underlies a lot of the politics and culture that we see all over the world today in many ways. And, right. and, and actually, as, as I mentioned earlier on, that's something that's very personal for you, too, that uh, one of the reasons that you study foreign policy, why you're fascinated with foreign policy, is because one of the things that you remember most keenly from your childhood is the Cuban Missile Crisis and that, and that sense that, you know, the bomb could be going up any minute. I mentioned in the book that my 10-year-old friends and I would sit around on our playground during recess arguing about whether our town, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, would be destroyed in the first wave of Soviet nuclear attacks. Uh, so, and, and coming yeah. to the conclusion that the best place to be was directly under the bomb because... Oh, we, every, everyone knew that, Richard. You know, everyone knew that you wanted to go when the bomb hit because it would be horrible afterwards. Um, and it, it, it was, you know, my, by the way, my next encounter with foreign policy was during the Vietnam War with the draft. So yes, for me, foreign policy has always been there, but I don't think here I'm just talking about Walter Mead's personal psychology. I think this, the reality that nuke, that, that the nuclear age is upon us. And of course, it's not just nuclear weapons, climate change, um, you know, pandemics engineered in a lab. All, there are all kinds of ways in which the advance of science and technology, rather than liberating us from fears, has, is creating new fears. But then in the middle of this, you know, so 1944, 1944, then 1948, the Israeli War of Independence. Israel appears. And for an American culture steeped in the Bible, but many having doubts, can we really believe the Bible? Is the Bible just a collection of documents written by different people in different times? Or is there something more than that? This idea that, that a biblical idea that the Jews in the last days will return to the Holy Land, um, something that's been in American cultures we've seen since the 17th century, that this is happening, it was a ray of hope. And if you look at Billy Graham's preaching, this was central. This was a, a theme in his preaching. And I think the Christian revival in America of the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s was very much connected to the, the, the thriving of the state of Israel. It, it's striking, too, that the evangelical churches were very important uh, in the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Let, let, let's talk a little bit, the, just for a moment, about contemporary policy. I mean, obviously, you, you talk about Donald Trump, uh, Trump uh, upending traditional strategy, including uh, on uh, in, in the Middle East. You've got the Abrahamic Accords with 
uh, Jared Kushner, his uh, son-in-law, taking a, a leading role there. You also mentioned President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia that seemed to imply a continuity of policy uh, in this specific area with the Trump administration. What is your take uh, on uh, the, the last administration uh, and the first two years of the, uh, of the, the Biden administration? Well, I, you know, as I pointed out in, in the book, one of the ways to understand Trump's foreign policy, uh, particularly his Israel policy, is to see that he used it. His policies were untraditional, but with Israel, he was doing something very traditional, which is it allowed him to communicate with his base. And I should just say a word here that, a, that an important theme in the book is that Whatever is driving American policy with respect to Israel, it's not the American Jewish community. Donald Trump was the most, you know, in some measures, pro-Israel president in the history of the United States. There's never been a president that the large majority of the American Jewish community disliked more than Donald Trump. And this is not just a question of voting. If you look at where Jewish campaign contributions went in 2016 and 2020, um, uh, Trump's opponents did much better than Trump did with American Jews. So to, to try to somehow say it's the, the Jews are the reason for American policy on Israel, I think is, is really crazy talk in my view. But uh, Trump, Trump's message, Trump was, was an insurgent in the Republican Party. He stole the Republican Party out from under the Republican establishment. And one of the ways he did this was he said, look, they talk about this. You know, they had talked about bringing, you know, moving the U.S. embassy to Israel, uh, to Jerusalem, is something that President Bush talked about but never did. President Obama actually even talked about it. President Clinton talked about it but never did it, promised to do it, never did it. And Trump does it. Uh, it was, it was his, his way of saying, I'm the politician who does what I, what I tell you I'm going to do. You can trust me. And for the section of the evangelical churches who supported Trump, uh, Israel was an important issue and the Supreme Court was an important issue. And he used both his Israel policy and his Supreme Court policy to deepen his relationship with his base. Finally, Walter, I mean, you t we know that very often uh, this debate uh, can be toxic. Um, you've kind of tried to bring a rationality, a balance, uh, a fairness uh, to uh, the debate. Um, I just wonder what the, the reaction has been uh, to the book uh, in, in terms of its contribution to the debate and, and how people uh, have responded uh, to, to you and to the book. Well, I have to say, and I'll knock on wood here, so far, I've been very pleased with the reaction of the book. A number of very interesting um, Arab American and Muslim American intellectuals have gone on record as saying they like the book and that it's a, it's a fair-minded account. Um, and I've had the same kind of reaction from uh, Jewish magazines uh, and Jewish intellectuals. The New York Times gave it a very favorable review, the Washington Post. So at this point, um, I am hearing from people 
around the uh, the kind of spectrum that they like it, and and it gives me a certain amount of hope because I think it's still possible to have intelligent, serious conversations among people who have some very different ideas, have those be civilized, calm, respectful, and maybe even get somewhere. And if you can do it on this subject, I think you can do it on just about any subject. So the book is The Ark of a Covenant to the United States, Israel and the Fate of the Jewish People. It's written by my guest, Walter Russell Mead, and published by Knopf. Uh, but for now, Walter, it's always such a pleasure. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.